We are in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. One of the recent recoveries of some good literature of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, how many of you have read, seen? Lots of you? Yeah, good. One of the central characters is a guy first known as Strider, later as Aragorn, and he is something of a mystery for a bit in the book. His dress initially and his bearing would lead you to believe that he's really not that important of a character, but as the book builds, his actions, things that are said about him reveal him to be much more than just a woodsman. Um, as the story builds, there's no doubt that Aragorn is king. He's the rightful heir of two kingdoms, and he is coming to sit on the throne again. The same is true of Jesus throughout the Gospels. You have glimpses throughout that he is great, and yet he comes born of a virgin in a small backwater town. He isn't dressed as kings, he doesn't eat the food of kings, he doesn't um, have the following of kings, and yet every so often throughout his life, you see, you get glimpses of it, and especially as you draw near to the end of his life, to the cross, this is one of those places. He is often very confusing and polarizing. Some say he's a prophet. Others call him a demon-possessed crazy man. Um, He performs godlike miracles, speaks with kingly authority, and yet lives like a slave. And yet, what the people call him in verse chapter 21 and things he does in the temple lead us to see the truth that there is none like him, and he is the king. Let's read these verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks in the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we had entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your holy and eternal inspired word. You have given it that we might keep it. That we might see our own sin and turn and need to your grace. God, we love your law. It is our meditation day and night. And so please teach us in order that we might keep it and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Pastor Jeff said, this is a Sunday before Easter, typically titled Palm Sunday, where we celebrate Jesus' ascent into Jerusalem, where he is greeted by great crowds, hailing him as the promised coming king. And so we saw last week in 2017 that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He tells us that he's going there to be betrayed by the, to the chief priests who will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock, flog, and execute him on a cross and that he would be raised on the third day. And yet he still goes and now he arrives. And we're thankful for this, aren't we? He didn't shrink back from death. He went. In 21.1, Jesus and his disciples draw near to Jerusalem, enter the city, In the first 11 verses, we record his arrival to great praise and honor by a large crowd. And then verses 12 to 16, we record Jesus entering the temple, the place of his worship, of the worship of God, and purging it of his enemies. One thing to note throughout these verses are the several direct quotes um, from the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 is quoted in verse 5. Uh, Psalm 118.25 are the crowd's praises of the coming king. Jesus explains his zeal in cleansing the temple by quoting from Isaiah 56.7 and also Jeremiah 7.11. And Jesus defends the praises of the children calling him the king by quoting from Psalm 8.2. And so we see that the Bible is used to explain and clarify the Bible. And this should be instructive for us. We should always use the Bible to explain and clarify the Bible. And the most evident reality in these verses is simply that Jesus is king. That's it. The first place that we see this uh, future reality that God would send a king is in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, David assumes that because he lives in a very nice house of cedar, a palace, and that God's place of worship is still just a tent, that uh, he should build God a temple, a home, a dwelling place on earth. And God rebukes his presumption, but not rebuking in a way of kind of just condemning, rebuking by saying, David, you presume to build me a house. It's going to be the exact opposite. I'm going to build you a house. And he gives a promise to the king that any king would want to hear that you will have a descendant, a son, a king who will reign forever. And the rest of the Bible then is uh, the coming 
true of that promise. You see throughout the Old Testament allusions to this. Psalm chapter 8. Uh, we'll quote here, Psalm chapter 2, that this king is coming, this king is coming, this king is coming. And now here he is, and he's greeted by the people as the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is king. He's coming to reclaim his throne. He's coming to defeat his enemies. He's coming to save his people. And he is greeted by a great royal procession. And that's what this is. In times past, when kings went out of the city, went out of the country, either for battle or others, and they came back, they were always greeted royally. In our day, we might say the red carpet was rolled out. And here is Jesus, the returning king, coming to his people, and they see him for who he is. Right? So Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now, that is easily applicable to you and I. Uh, we are to submit to him as king. We are to worship him as king. We are to honor him as king. But we see in these verses two right responses to him. We see the obedience of the disciples. And we see the worship of the crowd and of the children. So obedience and worship. You might notice that Jesus gives... His disciples, what you and I would consider a rather strange task. Um, go to a village on the way to Jerusalem and take a donkey and her foal. <laughs> uh, they'll be tied up there. You'll see them. Untie them. He gets in great detail. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anybody tries to stop you, you just tell them uh, the king needs them. <laughs> and they'll send you on your way. I don't know about you. Uh, but I would be a bit reluctant to do this. It'd be like your mother telling you, hey, go over to your neighbor's house. I have needed some flour. It's in the cabinet right above the sink. Go ahead and grab me two cups. And if anybody says anything, you just tell them the queen has need of them. Uh, and if that's not striking enough, read in verse uh, 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Again, you should always ask yourself, when these little editorial uh, notes are given, you should ask, why is that there? What's it for? Well, he's showing us the right response to the king. One of the things that we have been taught as parents to help understand what obedience of our children should look like to us are, is right away, all the way, happy heart. Kids should do what you tell them to do right away. They should do it all the way. They should complete the task. And they shouldn't do it like grumpy smurf. They should do it like happy dwarf. They should do, do it eagerly. And here are the disciples doing this. So a right response to... The Lord Jesus Christ is a heart that trusts and loves him and is glad to give obedience to him. And so here the disciples are giving us a godly example. Now, you'll, if you know anything about these disciples, this isn't always the reality with them. Um, they do have some awesome examples of obedience when Jesus sends them out two by two to preach the repentance of the kingdom, they do it. 
but there are some times where they don't. Well, of course, the prime example of this would be Judas, who at this very moment is plotting the betrayal of Jesus. You have some times where the disciples presume to rebuke the king. Like Peter does and Jesus foretells them that he is going to die on a cross. And so these guys are just guys too. They're not like some super spiritual, cut above kind of Christian. They're just sinners. It's all they are. They need the death and resurrection of Jesus just as much as you and I do. These aren't super intelligent guys. These are fishermen and carpenters. They're just regular, ordinary Dudes, nothing super spiritual about them. This obedience that they're here showing is just by the grace of God, just like you and I, and yet they are showing you and I what does it look like to follow Jesus. It's really simple. So let's, let's, let me get down into this. One of the mistakes that Christians sometimes make with a narrative text like this, so narrative, this is just a, an accurate, true, historical retelling of what happened. Sometimes we, when we read sections of Scripture like this, we take it to be like straightforward, one-to-one teaching on how to listen to Jesus. And that's really not what this is here for. Let me think of it like this. Do you as a parent expect your child to know what you want them to do without plainly, objectively telling them what to do. Sometimes you do, but you know that's really foolish. Do you expect your child to kind of figure out internally a subjective impression or a feeling that they should take as obeying you? You know what I mean? Sometimes your wife will do this to you as a husband, right? She'll want you to do something and you should have figured out that you're supposed to do it. And then when you didn't do it, she's upset and angry with you because you should have known to do it. And sometimes she's right. And sometimes it's better for her just to tell you in detail on paper, (laughs) right? What I'm getting at here is that we are to obey God, but this isn't teaching you that you're to subjectively wait around for an impression or a dream or Jesus to come and speak audibly to you. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching you that God has given you his objective written word and you and I are to respond to it like the disciples are here to Jesus' objective, clear, spoken word. Do you understand what I'm getting at? So many Christians... I think well-meaning, but I think evidencing some immaturity, think that what God expects of you is to wait around for a subjective impression or a feeling, maybe a dream, or maybe something that somebody else feels like God is telling them to tell you, and that you're to be obedient to that like and even maybe sometimes more so than you are to be obedient to God's word. And I find that this is very hurtful to people. They're often very discombobulated, unsure. Um, They lack confidence. They're struggling. They're being turned inside out. 
And sometimes they even put pressure on others because they've received this impression, they've received this dream, and everybody else should yield to it just like they are. And sometimes even what they're sensing or feeling or dreaming is profoundly unwise. It's frightening. It's, it, if others that you know and trust would give you input, they would tell you it's unwise, but you feel like just because God came to you and spoke to you, you must do it. And I just want to say, you will find that nowhere in Scripture. That's not what this is teaching. Jesus is here speaking clear, objective, inspired words of God which are recorded in Scripture, and that is to what we are to give this kind of obedience. Does that make sense? We are to be diligent to obey the Lord our God by being careful to do all His commandments, Deuteronomy 28.1. This really gets to both who God is and what Scripture is. Is God the kind of Father who leaves you guessing as to what requires and then chastens you for not getting it? Or is God the kind of God who loves us so much that he made plain in human language what he requires of us all in his word? What kind of God is he? What kind of father is he? That's right. Charlie, that's great. And this also gets to what is this word? Do we actually believe that God's word is sufficient for all of life and godliness? Do we believe like the Apostle Paul wrote in Second Timothy, that all Scripture has been breathed out and is useful and sufficient for all correcting and all competence and all kinds of ministry? Or are we consistently waiting for something more? See, the doctrine of Scripture is that this is closed. These 66 books are it. There's nothing more coming. And rather than listening to somebody who says, I feel like God is saying, you should immediately have some caution there. Because God has spoken. And when somebody says, I feel like God is saying, aren't they saying? He's saying something more than this? And you should know just by some prime TV hucksters who have built millions of dollars out of easily... um, Duped is too strong a word. I can't think of the better word there. Um, Christians who, who have heard them say things like that and been manipulated. And we ought to be cautious there. God is not asking you to figure out his subjective will. He's not asking you to do that a bit. He is sovereign. We are to pray for wisdom, seek advice, and go on. We, we just want to stick to his word. So we see this great example of humble, immediate, glad obedience to the disciples. They trust Jesus and they're willing to do it because they know that he cares for them. Next we see the worship. The crowds gather. They see Christ coming in on a donkey, a colt, humble. It doesn't have a saddle. They put cloaks on it. They spread cloaks on the road, they cut branches, spread them on the road, and then they gather to worship and they shout. Note that. They were shouting, Hosanna! They were shouting, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest! Shouting. He cleanses the temple and the children cry out, it's noted. 
They cry out like Vince did there. They, they strained their voices to the max. Hosanna to the son of David. So they're worshiping. I just want to look at three truths we can learn about worship here. All are welcome. They worship God with the words of God. And a benchmark of God-pleasing worship is volume. You can see that here. First, all are welcome. We should be encouraged that Matthew writes in verse 9, and crowds. These aren't important people. A more common word would be here, rabble. (laughs) You and I can identify with these people. They're just common people. The religious elites, the powerful, are mad here. They're not gathering to worship. The roofers, the store owners, the young and the old, the house moms, those are who gather here. All are welcome. No one is excluded except in their own unwillingness. This is central to the truth of the gospel, isn't it? We preach the gospel, and all and any are welcome to hear it and respond in repentance and faith and come to Jesus. All are welcome. So if you are not a Christian, if you, for whatever reason, think your sin is too much for Christ, if you think you're not important enough for Christ, this should tell you otherwise. You You have nothing to do except what this crowd is doing, which is come to Christ. That's it. Just come to Him. The Bible calls that coming to Him, repenting of your sin, owning that you have failed God and disobeyed His words, and putting your hope and your trust, your faith in Him. Not only are all welcome, but notice that the content of their worship of God is the Word of God. They're not creating something new here to worship God. They're actually using God's word to worship him. I've said this before. They're, the crowd is here quoting verbatim from Psalm 118. The content of the worship of God is the word of God. They're using the Bible to worship the God of the Bible. Let me ask you something. What is worship for? Why do you come here? Why do we gather on Sundays to worship corporately? Why do we reenact in some fashion this kind of exaltation of King Jesus? What's it for? We could say lots of things, but there's two primary goals here on Sunday morning. We want to come and worship God in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to Him. Our first audience every Sunday morning is God. We're not here to make everybody happy. We're not here to tickle ears. We are here in the fear of God to worship God in a way that is pleasing to God. So we don't take surveys of the crowd and figure out what your felt needs are. That's not what it's for. We look at God's word, figure out what he said about worship, and worship him accordingly. That's number one goal. The second goal is you and I come because we want to be changed. Christians are those who want to become more like Jesus. And we're convinced 
Now, the main thing that God has given us to become more like Him is Sunday morning worship. Okay? So let's take those two. What is more pleasing to God in worship than using His Word to worship Him? If we're coming every Sunday morning, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, to offer Him worship that is acceptable to Him, which should help us see that there is worship that is unacceptable to Him. See Nadab and Abihu, <laughs> who went outside of God's Word and tried to worship, offer Him worship according to their own acceptability, and a consuming fire destroyed them. What is more acceptable and pleasing to God than using His Word to worship Him? I think this takes faith. He is not coming. He does not expect us to come and be creative in our worship. He, he, he calls us to come and by faith take up his word to form the words of our worship of him. You see this throughout the entire Bible. Every time you see God's people worshiping God, they are always using the content of his word to worship him. Look at Revelation. In heaven, when worship is happening before King Jesus, what are they worshiping with? They're quoting the Bible. Why did he give us the book of Psalms? Songs, 150 of them. What for? To sing. That's why David t- tells us, in, or Paul tells in places like Colossians 3, sing psalms. So the content of the worship of God should be the word of God because that's pleasing him. Second, what has the power? If you're, if you're here to be changed, and if you're here to see attitudes change in you, more pleasing to God, if you're here to see ways that you treat others more pleasing to God, if you're here to put to death sins that you've wrestled with, what has the power to change you like God's Word? That's it. If you are serious as a Christian, if you're not just playing around if this isn't just a country club that you're a member at, and it's all about you and your benefit, if you're actually here because you love God and you love God's people and you want to grow, there is nothing in the world that has the power to change you like God's Word. And you should come hungry to hear it. You should come hungry to hear it sung. You should come hungry to hear it prayed. You should come hungry to hear it read. You should come hungry to hear it preached. You should come with a humble, attentive heart, eager to hear God's word so that you can be changed. This is why preaching in the Bible is described as a hammer (laughs) or as a fire that cleanses or as a sword that plunges deep into your bounds, removing that which is displeasing of the Lord. We are formed by what we hear, and so what would we want more than God's word? Last We learn in their worship, volume matters in worship. You know, I've beat this drum before, and I've got a bigger mallet this morning. Again, if you were to read the places in Scripture where the worship of God is described, invariably, you'll see that the unqualified good isn't high excellence in performance. That's mentioned, but that's not the main thing mentioned. It's the heart of the worshiper 
which is seen mainly in the zeal and the volume. That is, throughout Scripture, the descriptor of the kind of worship that God wants. Now, we can make mistakes here, right? You could have people who are shouting from the rooftops the glory of God and internally as corrupt as some politicians. Right? You could do that. You could have somebody who's got their hand raised and they're look externally like they love God with all their heart, and internally there is unconfessed, undealt with sin. And, and the opposite could be true as well. You see people in the Bible whose lips are shut, like the mother of Samuel who came to the temple and was so filled with grief at her inability to have a child, and she's quiet. She can't even get the words out because of her grief. And in fact, Eli takes her for a drunken woman. So, so there is a place for silence, and, and quietness does not automatically equal lack of love for God. Those things being said, when people come to see King Jesus, they don't do it quietly, because he is so incredibly great, and what he has done is so incredibly good. In fact, the people who seem to worship God most rightly are often mocked and jeered at for their zeal. Remember King David as he was bringing in the Ark of the Covenant and dancing with all of his might and singing at the top of his lungs? Remember his wife? She despised him for it. Because <laughs> he was embarrassing her. Here, we see it. The kids are crying out at the top of their lungs. And what do the Religious leaders do to them. They're indignant. These kids. <laughs> they're mad. Now they're mad because they're calling Jesus Lord, but they're mad because they're doing it with such zeal. If these kids would have done this quietly, these guys wouldn't have gotten mad. Zeal for the Lord offends the right people. We should be offensive in our zeal. We should be. William Law writes that a heart tunes the voice to sing. If your heart is full of love for Christ, for who he is and what he's done, shouldn't that tune your voice to sing? So what do you do if you're here on Sunday morning and you're not one given to singing? It could be for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe you were taught at a young age that you shouldn't sing loud or grew up in a church that didn't have that kind of a thing. Maybe you are embarrassed of your voice. There could be tons of reasons for this. It, it could also be that you really don't have much love for God. And that is true. And you come here every Sunday morning and your face is blank and your hands hang limp and your lips don't move and it could be revealing a heart that has very little love for God and His Son. So what could you do with that? How could you be encouraged to sing? Well, first, you, you might come by repenting before God. 
we are told to sing, we're told to sing loudly. And you could simply come before him and say, forgive me. Second, you could ask God for help in this. You could simply say, God, would you please help me? Whatever the reasons are, please help me to sing. Remove my embarrassment. Let me not care so much about how I sound. Teach me to sing your praises, O oh God. Third, you could practice. This might sound crazy. I know this. If you're zealous for something, you'll sing eventually. Right? And so practice. Get a good worship song. When everybody's gone, crank it up and be embarrassed and look around and make sure nobody's watching. Teach yourself to sing. It doesn't come natural always. Maybe get somebody else to help you. Another way to say it is, could you imagine being in this crowd and sitting there stony-faced and lips shut? Imagine. Could you imagine at Jesus' second coming? Right? Won't you so be overwhelmed by the glory of the coming king, remembering all that he's done for you, that you cannot stay silent. Doesn't the Bible say, if you'll be quiet, the rocks will cry out? So that's worship. Jenny Geddes, transitioning now to the cleansing of the temple, Jenny Geddes was a Scottish woman zealous for God's honor. The Scottish church at the time when she was alive, this is early 1600s, was not at all aligned with the state church, with the Anglican church, which known in America as the Episcopal church. The Scottish church was free. It was more Presbyterian. It was Puritan. And uh, King Charles in 1633 determined to force his Anglicanism on the free church in Scotland. And he did it by commanding that the Anglican Book of Prayer, which the Scots thought too much uh, like Roman Catholicism, he commanded that it be read and used only in the churches in Scotland. Jenny Geddes was in Edinburgh for uh, coming to sell at the market. And sometimes these kind of people were paid by wealthy people to go and sit in a place and hold their seat. She was doing this this day at uh, St. Giles, I believe. This is Sunday, July 23rd, 1637. Oop, that was telling me I should be done. Uh, I got five more minutes. Uh, so she was sitting there. The dean of Edinburgh got up on this first Sunday and began to read from the Anglican Book of Prayer. <laughs> she picked up her stool and hurled it at his head. <laughs> and she is said to have yelled, Devil cause you colic in your stomach, false thief. Dare you say the mass in my ear? <laughs> she probably read Jesus cleansing the temple before that service is my idea. 
To, to this day, a plaque hangs in her memorial at, at that cathedral. <laughs> Jesus' behavior here is shocking. You've probably read this passage too much and are too familiar with it to realize how embarrassing it is. How if you were there that day, you would have been ashamed at Jesus. You imagine somebody coming into church and doing this. In the book of John, this, or another instance of this, he quotes Psalm 69.6, zeal for your house shall consume him to explain why Jesus did this. Zeal. Zeal is a largely ignored, sometimes belittled, ill-thought-of, but godly trait. King Jehu is praised for his zeal of the Lord in striking down his enemies in 2 Kings 10. 9, or 2 Kings 10. Godly, a godly man is said to have zeal for God's word in Psalm 119. Jesus comes as king, we read in Isaiah 9, and it says that he will have an unending government, that he will uphold with justice and peace, and then it says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. We are exhorted in Romans 12 to be fervent in spirit, zealous. Zeal is just committed, enduring fervor, gusto, vigor that lasts. It's not apathy. It's not indifference. And Jesus is showing us what zeal for the Lord can sometimes look like. Now, zeal is a godly trait in every Christian, but it's especially so in men. Men are to be zealous for the Lord. We're to lead the church. We're to lead our families. We're to lead our country in zeal for the Lord, and it's something that is too often, too often um, something that is belittled or that we're embarrassed to show zeal for. Paul exhorts men in the letter he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 to raise godly hands in worship, to show zeal externally. Sometimes men do show zeal. Let's say you're on a snowmobile flying along at 60 miles an hour and you're hooting and hollering. And then you come into church and you're suddenly transformed into a mild and quiet person. Let me ask us something. What would your advice have been to Jesus if just before he did this, he came to you and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. They have turned the house of the Lord into a place that is taking advantage of poor people. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to take a whip. I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to turn over their tables. I'm going to say, you're a bunch of thieves. What do you think about that? Should I do that? What would you say to him? I think what you and I would probably say is, not sure that's the right approach. These folks already want to kill you. Maybe you should just go in there and engage them in a conversation. Maybe a meal, a 
kinder, gentler tone. Wouldn't we say that to him? Or after he did it, let's say we were there with him and he went in and did this, and you stood there with jaw hanging open, watching in stunned silence, what would you say to Jesus after that? How would you evaluate Jesus' performance? You're just a bystander. Would you think him arrogant? Harsh? Does your definition of godliness, especially as a man, include something like this? Like volume in singing, zeal seems to be a lost treasure in the church. We're afraid of what people think more than we fear God. Now, why does this matter? Well, look at what Jesus is doing. He is glorifying the Father here. He is defending the honor of God here. He's not ashamed. Second, Jesus shows that he does not fear man more than God. He will do something that seems radical. He will say hard things because he does not fear man more than God. And third, he is actually protecting people. We note that the blind and lame come to be healed by him, where previously the blind and lame were just fleeced by the leaders here. He's actually doing this to honor God and to protect people. He's making a mess. He's starting a fight for glorious reasons. Where might you and I be encouraged to do this? Where should we consider showing this kind of zeal for the Lord? Well, one thing negatively is, too often, somebody who does show zeal is held in contempt or criticized by those who won't. And so we do have to stop doing that. There are pastors and preachers and authors today who are willing to fight for the glory of God and protection of people, and they are held in derision by much in the church. They are more closely aligned with Christ and the apostles and the prophets and how they speak than how silver-tongued, silver-mouthed preachers speak in our day. And we should, so far from criticizing them, we should defend and applaud them. We should show loyalty to them. Now you might consider using this. Say you were involved in pro-life ministry. 60 million babies have been aborted. Is that not a place for some godly zeal and some hard words? Isn't it? Or how about if you someday move from, a church, from here to another place and the only church you have is a place where God's word is not preached faithfully and it is soft-pedaled and nothing hard is ever said and hard topics are avoided, would that be a time to go into the pastor's office and show some zeal? Or to the elders? Jesus is fighting. He's angry. This is godly. This is righteous. Well, how can you apply this? 
Now first, again, you might start with asking forgiveness for lack of zeal. You might pray, secondly, for zeal. Third, I would encourage you to read the Bible with fresh eyes and look at the way that the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself speaks. Try to see them, their words, with the tone and with the force with which they were spoken. For learn to admire men and women who take these kind of risks for God. Missionaries are often like this. I'd encourage you, if you want to get a biography and read somebody who's like this, consider reading a biography of John Knox, Scottish reformer. There's two really good biographies, one by Douglas Bond, one by Doug Wilson. There's lots of them. That man had some courage and some fight for the Lord. I'd encourage you to sing. Let's close with this. Christ came, was lauded as king. He went and defeated his enemies in the temple and cleansed them out. He did it to glorify his father. He did it to protect his people. And this same king is coming again for us. Just as he came once into this city to great laud and praise, so he is coming again to rescue so that we can dwell with him forever. And don't you want this kind of a king with this kind of strength with this kind of vigor. He is not weak. He is not sitting idly by. He is reigning over all of creation, doing everything necessary to ensure your eternal good so that on the day of his coming, you're there with him. Let's, let's pray. I pray that you would teach us to love your son as he is here to learn from the disciples and their obedience and from the crowd's worship, the children's worship, and from the zeal. Help us to have these things. Help us to grow in them. Help us to start wherever we're at and take the next small step towards them for your glory and for the good of others. God, we praise you for your son and his coming and his dying and his rising. We look forward to his coming again. So come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name alone we ask. And amen.